Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Here comes 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now welcome the originator of the studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, what's up, Ron? And Merry Christmas. We're getting close, aren't we? Yeah, we're getting really close, that's for sure. Thank you very much. I'm doing great. Just uh, enjoying myself. Uh, got a beautiful day here, and uh, I hope everybody else around the country is getting nice weather. And, and uh, boy, they, they're starting to put shots in people today. Man, we might be, uh, this might be the beginning of the end of, of that nasty stuff that we got in 2020. We'll all be talking about that for a couple of decades. Yeah, no doubt, man. I hope so. And, and, and I worry about uh, all these folks that own restaurants that are having to shut them oh, down left and right oh, all across God. the country. And I saw the other day where over 100,000 restaurants will close permanently and won't open back up. So anyway, I, I just feel for those folks. And so we wish them the best. And uh, Absolutely, there's a lot of that uh, going on. And, Anyway, we just uh, we hope the hope the best for everybody. So I I I, I totally agree with you, man. Uh, where are we going to eat? That's what I'm thinking. Uh, yeah, that's that's, <laughs> that's an important part of my day every day, and sometimes three times a day. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, hey y'all, don't forget tnstud.com, tnstud.com, photos, t-shirts, DVD, five packs. Brutus is there too, even autographed. And don't forget as well, Super Studcast number 36 with Coco Beware and Norvell Austin. That is going to be absolutely legendary. And you're going to tell us more about that later in the program. All right, Ron, where are we riding to today? Well, we're on a very good ride today, I think, Dave. Uh, I think fans are going to really enjoy this one. We're going to begin with the very popular today's training, which has become a pretty good segment for us. And uh, this one focuses on Southeastern second year in a row, sponsoring of a longtime charity event in Knoxville. Uh, this event's also going to ignite Southeastern's give back program in 1977. It's going to lead us to all kinds of charitable events in uh, 1977, 78, 79. Uh, we'll be discussing some of those in this loaded stud cast. 
Now, then we're going to be riding into the week of December 17, 1976, almost exactly of uh, uh, 40 years uh, from this particular date that we're recording it. And we're going to talk about the card, the TV, the attendance, and the, the contribution to the uh, annual Milk Fund event that I just mentioned a second ago. Southeastern at this point is experiencing and was experiencing a tremendous growth period. It began with that NWA World Title Night with Terry Funk, October 10th, 1976. And it was followed by a string of sellouts at the Jacobs Building in Chilhowee Park for nine weeks in a row since that match has taken place before we get out of uh, that building. And it was because of the fact of where we are in this particular one, one week prior to Christmas, it was an amazing run for the fall of the year in any territory uh, that time or any other time. Uh, Because we're in the most difficult time of the year everywhere for wrestling. About the middle of October until Christmas Day, Mm. things are really difficult. And we're just selling out buildings and Wow, we're experiencing something pretty phenomenal. So, and we're only two shows away from returning to the Coliseum for the longest run yet, Southeastern in that building. 20 of the next 23 weeks, starting in October, starting in January 2nd of 1977, we're going to be in that beautiful building. Almost six straight months, we're going to be there. So, something special is going to happen to today's learning tree. Uh, you know, I've been sitting on this question, Dave, for months. Is about when I saw it, I said, "Wow, I want to do this." But then I got to thinking, I want to hold it for the time of year that it actually happened for me. And it was a great question about my family's experience with wrestling bears. Ba- bears. Bears. B e a r s. Them big bad boys that growl. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And, and are angry a whole lot. Yeah. You know? yeah. And and on that day. Following uh, the December 17th Knoxville card that we're going to be talking about today, I'm going to have my first match ever with a bear. So I saved this uh, question uh, for probably months to get to this particular date. So we're going to also talk about my grandfather Roy's first ever professional wrestling bear. I think he was the first ever. There's some conjecture to whose bear was first. But uh, I believe my granddad is certainly, if not the first, he's right in there with the very first person to ever train a wrestling bear. So get ready, Dave, and the fans out there. We're going on a special Studcast ride today. Well, it absolutely sounds like that is true. So from charity events to wrestling bears, only a Studcast can offer that. All right, so my horse this week, Uncle Fester's Revenge, is saddled and ready to ride, Ron. Let's get on the trail. Whoa, 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 whoa. Your horse uh, your horse has changed names. I mean, uh, last week you introduced your horse as uh, as Pickles. And uh, I've been thinking about that name, Pickles. You know, uh-huh. you know, you sure Pickles isn't a pony rather than a horse? I cannot believe you insulted my horse. You don't insult a man's horse, Ron. That's just... I don't care if even it is a, a podcast stud cast. I guarantee you, Uncle Fester's Revenge is not a pony, and he can keep up with lightning any day. So, oh. <laughs> all right. Well, I can't <laughs> even say that name, man. Much less ride him. You know. <laughs> yeah, he was on the he was on the circuit for a while. I won't say what kind of circuit yeah, it was. Yeah, what kind of circuit? Yeah. So, Uncle Fester's right Revenge. There. All right. So it's not Montezuma. 
All right, so let's ride let's ride our horses right on into today's training. What are we doing today? Okay, uh, here we go. Uh, today's training is going to focus on something happening on the, the date of December 17, 1976 in the matches in Knoxville that had absolutely, well, it had a little to do with wrestling only because it happened at a wrestling match. And uh, this training requires us, obviously, to wear two hats. Uh, we need to wear the promoter hat, and we're going to wear the owner's hat. So we're about to discuss how and why Southeastern Wrestling was going to step up to the plate uh, to become more than just another corporation in the Southeastern United States that profited from doing business there. The owner and me kind of made a decision that we were going to commit to giving back to our part of the country and those living there that needed help. So we had already been doing a very charitable thing across the Southeast for two years at this point by creating that high school program shortly after that I that I kind of uh, pieced together shortly after I arrived in Knoxville. And we'd been aiding participating schools and sports programs in those schools for years by exchanging, obviously, a percentage of the gross gate with them for the use of their gymnasiums and stadiums. We also gave them the rights of the very profitable concession stands at every event. Mm. Uh, it would have been difficult to, to run a concession stand and, and get the people and the traveling them around the country and the, uh, collecting everything they needed. Uh, so I just uh, I decided that let's just not deal with the concessions. Let's give it to the buildings and the schools. And uh, it really, really made them a lot of extra money. And they love seeing you come. That when when they saw Ron walk in, they were like, "Oh, hey, hey, we got an event." That's that's awesome because you bought overtime, and I know you're going to talk about this. Overtime, you bought uniforms, you bought jerseys, you you bought basketballs and football, you, uh, all kind of equipment. Yeah, probably musical instruments. Uh, yeah. You know, whatever those schools wanted to use these funds for. Uh, I never really uh, said you got to use them for this or for that. A lot yeah. of times, it were sports teams. That, yeah. Uh, that got the the benefit of it, but in many cases it wasn't always the sports uh, teams, and uh, the, it was a, probably the principals of each school's uh, decision as to where this money is going to be allocated to. Mm -hmm. But at least they got this money, and they not only got that twenty percent, but they're also going to get the concessions rights to the concessions. So wow, that's awesome. Some. Some schools probably made as much profit off the soft drinks and the popcorn and the hot dogs as they did off that 20% of the gross gate. <laughs> so it wasn't uncommon for most schools with these large gyms, and there were a lot of them in that part of the country, to draw crowds of 3,000 or more people a night. And uh, usually at that rate, they were going to make about 2,000 for their 20%, and then they probably made an additional 2,000 profit from the concession stand. So. That was a total profit of $4,000 for a single night. Uh, and, and if we went to school every other week, like we did in Harlan, Kentucky, as an example, that equaled about $100,000 a year from Southeastern wow. Wrestling for oh, those okay. DD schools. That's just yeah. one school. Yeah, yeah. So in the summertime, we could run outside in their football stadiums, and they could make even more money because, obviously, they had a lot more seats to fill. So from 1975 through 1979, we contributed millions of dollars to schools across the Southeast. We also participated in the annual 24-hour Jerry Lewis Telethon on WBIR-TV once we went there in 1975. Every Labor Day, that was an annual event on Labor Day from 1975 mm -hmm. to 1979, 
And the wrestlers loved to do that program. They really liked it because they had an opportunity to answer those phone calls and and, and touch base with real fans and, cool. and then pick up those contributions. And we raised a lot of contributions. We raised as much in the two hours that they put us on every year as they made in the whole 22 hours left in the temple. Wow. So, so we were just cranking the dollars for them, and, uh, and we were enjoying uh, uh, contributing and being a part of it. So they, they had Bob Armstrong answering the phone to say, hey, it's a Jerry Lewis telethon. How much would you like to donate? There you go. And wow. you know what they saw, <laughs> what they saw in the studio is, yeah. is uh, all these, all these wrestlers. And I mean, uh, you know, I even let heels do these shows. I put them yeah. in a separate section. So they were divided. Right. But, uh, heels were on there too. And the, the TV screen would be full of all these and they'd just be uh, panning back and forth and guys answering the phones and, and uh, we'd go in and sit down, and uh, for the 30 minutes prior to us entering the studio, you'll be full calls. And then once we sat down, the phones lit up. It was like, That's wow, awesome. they've been waiting on us, you know. And, uh, awesome. and I bet they were all on their best behavior for an event like this, of course. Oh, yeah. Gosh, man. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I even allowed Heels to have a little bit of personality and, uh, you know, be be pleasant, at least. Uh, wow. Didn't That's want them awesome. to be overly nice, but yeah. – but, uh, it was a great event, and there, and it was another thing that we had been doing. So that brings me to this week's matches in Knoxville on December 17, 1976, 40 years ago since this podcast. And the previous owner of the Knoxville Wrestling, a guy named John Kazana that I bought the company from, had always given a contribution uh, to this particular charity. It was called the Milk Fund. And uh, it was usually on the wrestling show before Christmas, the week before Christmas. So this money went to uh, families that couldn't afford food nor gifts for Christmas. And so I decided, wow, this is a great thing to be doing. And I kept that tradition alive. And and then beginning with the first Milk Fun Night, which was actually the first year I was there on Friday, December 20th, 1974, uh, we continued the charity through 1978, uh, which is going to be my last Christmas in Knoxville. Each year as our attendance grew, obviously, those contributions grew dramatically. Uh, this charity program had gotten less stature. And my attention, both of us, really looked at this event and said, geez, Ron, we need to be doing more. So uh, throughout 1976, obviously, our attendance had grown significant. We both felt that by 1977, we wanted to take a huge step forward in giving back to the community and doing it much more often. So we began that tradition in February of 1977 with a challenge basketball game between the wrestlers and all kinds of dignitaries from the Knoxville area. This game, and one like it every year afterward, always sold out one of the largest gyms in the city. Thousands and thousands of dollars were made on this game. Uh, the prices were pretty expensive because it was for charity. We didn't take anything, nor did any of these dignitaries. So probably the most impressive thing about this was the big-name people that got involved that lived in Knoxville and that surrounding area. And for the first time, once I saw the list as it started to be compiled of who's going to play in this game, I realized how big Southeastern had become in that part of the country. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, wow, this is a Southeastern event, and look at all these people. So the media got behind it, 
everybody, all, all forms of media, TV, radio, newspapers in Knoxville and the surrounding area, everybody got involved in these basketball games. It was like a who's who playing against us. These were just a few of the dignitaries playing in that game. Okay, mm-hmm. the Heisman Trophy winner and present head football coach of the Tennessee Volunteers football team, Johnny Majors. Wow. <laughs> professional WBA world heavyweight boxing champion, Big John Tate. The former mayor and present mayor in Knoxville, uh, Randy Tyree was the present mayor. Mm-hmm. The former Olympian and world long jump champion, Ralph Boston, was <laughs> playing in the game. Several former University of Tennessee basketball players, including Howard Bain, who was a globetrotter, man. Mm-hmm. You know, two FBI agents, a former linebacker from the Buffalo Bills, and a host of others. Man. Wow. Wow, Rod. Are you serious about all these people? That's pretty amazing. All right. But most of these were famous athletes. That's pretty cool, too. So they definitely know how to draw. So how bad how bad did they beat you and your wrestlers? Was it your wrestlers versus these, I guess yes. you'd say, local celebrities? That was the deal. Southeastern wrestling versus the, the city. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, and that part of the country, actually. So uh, it was a story for Studcast. That's a, that's a good story for Studcast in the future about, uh, about that. But I'm going to say that when they lined up at the beginning of the game, this gymnasium was sold out, people standing everywhere. Uh, they lined up across from me and my wrestlers, and uh, I was asking myself the same question you did, Matt, about how the heck are we going to beat this group, right? But actually, we were, end up, we, we were beating them so bad at the end of the third quarter that I sat down the fourth quarter, I didn't play any. So, uh, you know, we'll talk about that when we get to it. And we're going to be to this game in a couple of months uh, in the studcast. Oh, no doubt. That's going to be interesting. Can't wait to hear more about that. All right. What other things did Southeastern Wrestling do for charity? I mean, it sounds like you were heavily involved in the community. And when you're doing well and your guys are making really good money like they were, they were they were probably thrilled to be giving back that way. Oh, of course. You know, they they had never been, most of them, well, none of them had ever had experience with these type of events. And mm. it was a real opportunity that they'd never seen in, in wrestling. Doing something you know, outside the ring, yeah. Doing something outside the ring, doing something yeah. for the community uh, was unusual. So, mm. you know, we switched from basketball in the winter to softball games in the summer. We played in the baseball stadium where the local minor league baseball team, a professional baseball team played. And thousands turned out, man, for these softball games in the summertime. And uh, we just we were drawing more for these softball games, probably uh, twice a summer, than the baseball team was drawing. <laughs> you know, wow. More people showed up to see us than the baseball team. And thousands of thousands more dollars, obviously, were contributed. And we continued to give back to the community that had so kindly accepted us, man. What would the money go to? Would it was would it vary every time, or how, how did that work? Yeah, we we actually got involved with a company and and said, here's what we want to do, and we want you to find the the donors. They had been in that business for a while, and we spread it around. You know, I mean, it went to all types of different things, but uh, it really made me feel good. And as you said, it made the wrestlers feel great, but knowing where the money was going. And a lot of times after games, 
they would make the big contributions themselves. Wow. Know, which was, yeah. which is pretty amazing. Yeah. All right. Was this, now it sounds like an automatic thing that was just the right thing to do for your company there in Knoxville. Were other wrestling companies doing anything like this? Uh, to my knowledge, no, Dave. Uh, but, uh, you know, I never asked, uh, and there wasn't a lot of communication between territories in those days. Mm-hmm. He really didn't know what other people were doing as far as the talent, as far as their angles, as far as the, <laughs> as far as their crowds, uh, you really didn't know what's happening with the other wrestling companies. Except how much money the wrestlers made, right? Yeah. And <laughs> you know, that they, they got that figure around Yeah, yeah that, yeah. that figure got spread around pretty quickly, you know? Right. So, so in 1978, we added to our commitment. We became highly involved in the Special Olympics programs across the state of Tennessee. So every time our wrestlers went to those Special Olympics, they were the most recognized athletes there. It wow. was it was amazing, man. That's I mean, insane. every one of those kids knew who we were. And our participation was really highly appreciated by the people that ran those events, which were fine people, that's for sure. I was a selected, uh, in fact, uh, in 78 uh, as a representative for the Tennessee Special Olympics. Nice. So it was, a, it was another thing that we did. So looking back, Dave, those four or five years were some of the best memories I have of my wrestling days. And we became more than just a sport on TV and in the arenas and in the schools. We became an integral part of the fabric that held things together in that part of the country. We also earned something very few wrestling promotions and territories had. We gained respect and admiration from not only our fans, but almost everybody we met. Uh, even those big dignitaries like the Tennessee football coach, and they left those games thinking totally different about wrestlers than they had before wow. uh, with respect and admiration. And, uh, that was part of the whole deal. We wanted to give back, and we figured out how to do it. And Johnny Majors was like Bear Bryant is in Alabama for Tennessee back then. That's just huge that he would come and participate. And so, obviously, that's just – it just sounds like you guys were just doing things right. So th- I mean, there's no no wonder that your company was successful. So, that's a congratulations. I mean, And, and, and again, it's just one of those – feel good things when you're out there with the special olympians that's just really cool all right ryan where are we riding to next well we're going to ride into southeastern friday night december 17 1976 the milk fun charity night uh, and the opening match is going to be rip smith or it was rip smith versus the great mephisto the second match was a sleeper versus sleeper match the winner had to put his opponent to sleep to win the match it was don Carnoodle versus the new gladiator, Jim Dalton. Mm. And then a special six-man tag was third. It was Tor Tanaka, Robert, and myself against Ronnie Garvin, Big Bad John, and Louis Tillette. Mm. And two of the wrestlers in this match are going to be coming back in the main event. A Southeastern Tag Championship was on that card. Best two out of three falls. Texas Tornado match with all four men in the ring at the same time. The new champions, Bob Armstrong and Jimmy Golden, had finally defeated the Von Steigers, and they were defending against the prior champs. And the main event was a loser-leaves Southeastern match, Ronnie Garvin, managed by Big Bad John versus Tora Tanaka. Wow. So either Garvin or Tora Tanaka are not going to be coming back to Southeastern. Right. 
So right. How do you get that match booked? I'm not sure if that sounded very smart, but uh, e- either way, you're, you're losing. You're going to lose a big star. That's got to be a big loss, right? <laughs> Definitely, you're darn right about that, Dave. You know, uh, uh, and part of that all goes back to guys changing uh, territories and the movement in of wrestlers within the country back in the day. So the, the loss of either Tanaka or Garvin from Southeastern, obviously, it made this an extremely important main event. Fans really came to see this one because, gosh, they they didn't want to see Tanaka go, you know, and then uh, most of them wanted darn well to see Garvin go. So, <laughs> uh, so maybe it's important enough uh, to be the reason that we sold out eight days before Christmas. We just continued that string of sellouts right on through to Christmas night, which is going to be in the next studcast. That's that's incredible. I bet they wanted to see Garvin go, except they also loved seeing him fly off that top rope and how how much air he was going to get under him. So I know that was one fascinating thing for the fans back in the day. All right, so my guess now is we're going to hear about the TV show for Saturday, December 11th. Today's the 15th, so almost, well, how many years ago? But six days before this card. So is that where we're headed? Uh, I guess you're right. You got your calendar, man. (laughs) uh, You're right about the date. And that's exactly right. It's a TV (laughs) six days before this December 17th card. And uh, before we start this TV, I didn't have enough time in last week's studcast to explain what happened in the the big main event from the December 10th, 1976 main event Mm -hmm. uh, the week before, in which Robert and I were wrestling against Garvin and Big Bad John. Louis Tillet and Tor Tanaka were both going to get involved in that match. So that's where we open this show, basically, is uh, with that match from the Friday night before. This is going to open up with another one of those fantastic still shots of Ronnie Garvin uh, doing just exactly what you said a minute ago, flying from that top rope, and he's going to come down on the throat of Toru Tanaka in this match, you know. And uh, so Robert and Tanaka and I uh, were on the set with with Les. Tanaka was furious, man. Now and uh, we're we're talking about what had happened to him the night before, and he was like, "Whoa, wow, to be." He was hard to contend with anyway, but but on this day, he was just out of control. As always, he was non-understandable. He was ranting away <laughs> about something. And as we watched the still frame video, uh, the still frame shot was behind us. And, uh, you know, he could see it in the monitor in front of him. And he was he was upset that, hey, that, that hey, dude, what are you showing this for? I don't know exactly <laughs> what was making him so upset. But uh, Robert was trying to control him about the time they ran the video. And then I had Les back the video up because the video was right at the end of the match and it didn't show the reason for Tanaka to be so mad. And once they backed the video up, they backed it up to a point where Tanaka had just arrived at ringside. And uh, the fans could see why this match that was upcoming was booked. So this time the video began with Rob and the referee. They're both face down on the concrete floor. I had Big Bad John pinned in the middle of the ring. The video showed Garvin, who was had been out on the floor, crawl up on the apron of the ring, and he looked up. And in this building, the old Jacobs building had a two-story, it was a two-story building, and the dressing rooms were upstairs. And the wrestlers would come out on the balcony there sometimes and watch the matches. 
So Garvin crawled back upon the apron ring and he looks up and he waves to somebody up there on the second floor balcony. Wow. It's a, that's a wrestler. To, yeah. To like come down. Right? Yeah. So, and that's exactly what happened. It was Louis Tillette that was actually uh-huh. out there watching the match. And he raced her down to the ringside and he passed Garvin some kind of object. And uh, then he goes around and he gets involved with Rob on the floor to try to keep Rob from getting involved. So Garvin now has has a, something that, that he's going to nail me with. And he crawls into the ring and he hits me in the back of the head with it. He rolls me off and the referee's down on the floor outside the ring as well. We've had a really wild match. And at this point, uh, Garvin nails me in the back of the head. He rolls John on top of the pile. And, uh, and then the, the let's out there kicking the heck out of Rob on the floor. And uh, along comes big old monster Tora Tanaka. And uh, Tanaka, he karate chops to let back of the head and uh, down he went. Uh, Tanaka now, bear in mind, we're watching this. Me and Rob are trying to talk about what's happening. And Tanaka's nonstop. I'm the bar. He just, he's just crazy back there behind <laughs> us, you know. And uh, so it shows to let go down when Tanaka hits him. And then Tanaka goes into the ring. And Garvin still got his object that he hit me with. And when Tanaka slides into the ring, Garvin comes across the ring to nail him with it. And then Tanaka blocks him and he nails Garvin with a big old chop to the forehead. And Garvin drops his object and he goes sailing backwards out on the floor. And Tanaka kicks his object out of the ring. And I don't know why he did that. You know, he could have reached down there and picked it up and, uh, you know, put it in his tights, keep somebody else from getting it or whatever. Anyway, he kicked it out of the ring. And the video showed it pretty clearly. The fans, one fan on the front row got up and picked it up, put it in his pocket, right? Wow. So Tanaka put me on top of John. At this point, you know, the the pile had been switched, but after Garvin nailed me, but this time Tanaka just reversed the pile again, put me back on top of John. He jumped out of the ring and he helped the referee to get to his feet and shoved him in the ring. Ref called over and he counted Big Bad John out. Uh-huh. Then he signaled the timekeeper, obviously, to ring the bell. Now, Rob and uh, Tillette, they're still both down at this point. They've just knocked each other all around out there. They've never gotten in the ring yet. Garvin searched the floor for his object. He <laughs> went looking for it. He knew it got knocked out, but he couldn't find it. So instead of, he didn't have anything. So he grabbed the timekeeper's steel chair. Timekeeper's sitting out there uh, watching the time and keeping up with things and so he just shoves the timekeeper out of his chair and grabs his chair. Tanaka jumps back in the ring after I get my uh, hand uh, raised by the referee, and he mm-hmm. he gets me up on my feet, and uh, and he raises my hand as well, you know, and boy, what an explosion from the crowd. They were happy. The big man had really saved the day. And Garvin sneaked back in the ring, and he sneaked up behind Tanaka. He hit Tanaka over the head with that steel chair. Oh, my gosh. It sounded like a cannon went off. It's wow. Like, wow. You know, and even Tanaka couldn't stand that one. It took him. He went down. And uh, the still, ref still, still hurting from what happened to him earlier in the match. So uh, he took the chair, tried to take the chair from Garvin. And Garvin threw the ref over the top rope. He grabbed me, threw me over the top rope. And about that time, Big Bad John's finally getting up, and he drags Tanaka to the center ring. Garvin climbs to the top rope, and and boy, here he comes, the big bird flying again. It landed in Tanaka's throat. Uh, then he didn't, wasn't good enough for Garvin, uh, because Tanaka, you know, being uh, not the normal guy, 
Garvin went back up and, and jumped to flew a second time and gave him a second one in the throat. And then the three hills men were and were had to be guarded. They they hit the floor and they started for that dressing room and the policemen, boy, what a what a what a fight it was. They had a huge fight with the crowd. The policemen and everything, it was a mess, them trying to get to the dressing room. Wow. So so this video that these people watched at the beginning of the show. It said everything about what had happened that night. Obviously, it was more than worth a thousand words. You could have never described it like it was on video. And Tanaka never calmed down during the whole thing. And he never stopped screaming, whatever he was saying. He was just really, really out of control. And when it was done, he started saying just two words after it was all over. And he, you could finally understand when he had just two words. He said, Luda, leave. Lose a leave, lose a leave. <laughs> like, like, you don't want to mess. You don't want no more of this. I want to. I want to be. I want to beat him really good and get him out of here. I picture him sounding like the Tasmanian devil. Oh, he just you know he he was amazing. What a what a great what a great wow. guy he was, and uh, such a beautiful and um and uh, tough human being man yeah so we had to drag him away from the set and he was supposed to wrestle in the very first match that video then is going to lead us into two matches for the following friday night one of them is going to be that six-man tag that i talked about earlier with me and rob and tanaka against garvin big bad john and louis tillette and the other is going to be that loser leaves town match between garvin and tanaka rob and i pointed tanaka toward the ring we got him away from the set and standing in the ring is two two scared opponents. They've watched Tanaka go nuts for ten minutes. They know he's just boiling with anger. Yeah. And uh, they're they're like, oh, they're looking at each other like, oh God, what are we doing here? <laughs> and, uh, so and then uh, Tanaka boy, he 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 realized, oh, I'm in the ring. <laughs> oh boy, he 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 went. I'm telling you, he he just went sliding in there, man, right up on his feet. So the announcer didn't even get able to, they wasn't even able to finish the introductions before Tanaka attacked both of them. <laughs> he didn't wait on the bell. He didn't, he just saw two bodies. I'm mad. I've got to get somebody, right? So, <laughs> and it was supposed to be a handicap. One guy on the apron, one guy in the ring, but Tanaka didn't care, man. He <laughs> this was, this was not going to be necessary. Uh, it was actually, Rob and I never, never went to the dressing room. We stood there, backed off from the cameras. It was horrifying to watch him. He just chopped those <laughs> poor bodies to pieces. It was like, oh, God, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so Garvin and Tillette and Big John, they came back and did the first interview. Uh, the six-man tag got some attention, you know, but that, that loser leaves Southeastern main event was what got most of their talk, man. That's That's where they put their emphasis on that interview. Uh, because it was a loser leave town between two superstars, you know, two guys that really meant something. So this was the type of match that absolutely nobody could figure out what was going to happen the next week. Which one of these two guys is going to lose? Yeah, who's going to lose and who's going to leave? That's in, that's uh, that's pretty amazing. What a wild start to a TV show. All right, hey, we're in a perfect spot to take a break. It's been a lot of fun so far. We haven't even gotten to the bear stories with your grandfather yet. Those are coming up. Stay with us. And what happened on TV, that's coming up too. This Studcast will continue in a moment right here. Stay with us. 
Ron Super Studcast number 36 highlights two wrestling stars that both left their mark on the sport we all love. One became a Hall of Famer, and the other paid his dues in multiple territories with many different partners. Part one features the Birdman, Coco Beware, who was born only 35 miles from where the stud was born. Part two reunites Ron with his longtime friend that wrestled for him in three of his four territories, the great Norvell Austin. At TNStud.com and Patreon.com slash StudCast. The beauty of this combination in Super StudCast number 36 is the fact that they formed their own team with a solid respect and relationship that has lasted for years afterward. The PYT, Pretty Young Things, in the 1980s set the ring on fire everywhere they went. Super StudCast, like the regular StudCast, just keep getting better and better. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast only $2.99. No wonder they're called the best deal in wrestling. Hey, it's David Summers. We're back with the Tennessee Stud. Another Studcast is underway. And while I enjoy the stories from the Studcast, I am also looking at TNStud.com. TNStud.com. There's a category called gallery. A lot of the folks that the Stud is talking about, you can see them right there, including his father, his grandfather, and even the wrestling bear. That is all on tnstud.com under the category of gallery. All right. So we were going to say, we were going to tell you, were going to tell us what was happening on the TV show. So what's, what's up next, Ron? Okay. So, you know, obviously Bob Armstrong and Jimmy Golden had, had won the Southeastern championship from the longtime champions of Von Steigers. And they got the opportunity to watch that video. Both teams are going to, wrestle live on this program the right after this interview bob and, and jimmy are going to wrestle live mm-hmm. and then uh, the von steigers are going to wrestle the third match live and then do an interview after that and uh, obviously their interviews are going to be all built around this best two out of three falls texas tornado match for the championship a really unusual match and obviously the germans went back to their same thing what kind of stupid American matches have we wrestled in this time? You know, what are they doing here? You know, and uh, it, then the last match on the show was Ronnie Garvin, and he wrestled against another pitiful guy that had the, the, the displeasure of being in the ring with Garvin. And uh, gosh, you know, Garvin pounded him just like always, and it was just, oh, it was terrible, terrible to watch. And it, it appeared uh, he set him up at the end. Uh, you know, had him beat, set him up at the end for his normal deal. He's going to jump off in his throat. And it just looked like, well, here here we go. It's going to be another inning. But, boy, all of a sudden, here comes Tanaka. He's not going to have him jump off in anybody else's throat, man. Okay, so he's starting you know? to climb the ropes, and here comes Tanaka. Yeah, he's starting to climb the ropes to do the jump, and uh, Tanaka slides in the ring, and he runs straight across the ring. He steps over the dead body laying there. <laughs> that Garvin's about to kill even, even worse. Yeah, and, and he grabs Garvin up there on the top rope, and he slams him all the way over the opponent into the far corner. <laughs> it's like, wow. wow. I was like, wow. I've never seen anybody get slammed that far. And then the, he, 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 was, he was just livid. All of a sudden, then the Big John, he jumps up on the apron. He's watching it, man. And, uh, and he, tries to, he tries to take a swing at Tanaka, and Tanaka hits him with a karate chop, and it sent him off the apron. He landed on his back and slid across the concrete floor. 
<laughs> and the crowd popped, man. They'd popped as soon as Kanaka hit the ring. But everything he did to Garvin and the big bad John, they got another big pop out of. And then Tanaka chased them both out of the studio to the dressing room. It was like a little bit of pandemonium on the end. And uh, so Rob and I go to the set for the last interview. Now, Tanaka's involved in this interview, but he doesn't come to the set. And when I look around for him, he's over there at ringside. He pulls up the apron of the ring, and he's taking out these concrete blocks from underneath the ring, right? And uh, now we're supposed to be doing interview at the set. So uh, he must have left those blocks there before I even got there that morning. He must have come and slid these blocks under the ring. I had no idea, neither did anybody else, including Les. So thank goodness there was a two-minute interview break before the interview, or we'd have been sitting here, and Tanaka would have been over to ring, uh, pulling concrete blocks and stuff out. But he starts setting up his blocks. Well, you know, Les, man, he never liked surprises in his show. And, and in this case, I didn't like it either, you know, because, heck, he knew he was supposed to be with me and Rob. And as I said, he never said anything about these blocks at all that whole day. And I told Les, I said, Les, we need to go over there where the blocks are, man, <laughs> you know, or, or we're not going to get any of Tanaka. So that's what we did. We left the set and we went to the ring kind of spontaneously. Wasn't supposed to happen, but, you know, Tanaka's got his blocks set up by this time. So it's the last interview of the show. And uh, normally Les is going to close out the show after the interview. He'll be at the set. But this time he's not going to be at the set when this show is over. When the light went red on the cameras, which indicated that we were back live, Rob and I were standing just off to the left of Tanaka, who's standing behind his blocks. And mm -hmm. he's got these these three stacks of four-inch thick concrete blocks. Uh, wow. and one of them had one block on it. One of them had two blocks stacked on it. And one of those stacks had three of those four-inch thick <laughs> blocks. Twelve inches of concrete was on the third one. And Rob and I are looking at him like, what's he going to do? You know, he, he's still not talking to us. He's just mm -hmm. standing behind his box, got his arms over his, over his chest, and he, he, he's going to do his thing. So, uh, you know, we're, you know, we start, Rob starts start the interview, and, uh, you know, and uh, we had no idea, uh, neither did the studio audience, neither did Les uh, or the thousands at home, what they were about to witness, man, and it was going to be something indescribable. So Les opened up with me and Rob. We talked about uh, both of us, uh, the upcoming six-man tag, and then a lot, some about the Garvin and Tanaka loser lead match. But then with about 30 seconds left, Les, you know, he, he didn't, he doesn't know what to do. So he's, Tanaka's still standing there. So he, he kind of throws it to Tanaka and he's, he asked Tanaka, he says, uh, do you have anything to say? Uh -huh. <laughs> And Tanaka looks at him, you know, and he's standing over there behind his blocks and the whole deal. And he says, uh, and you can almost understand this, too. He goes, uh, I know talk. I show. I show what I do. <laughs> and, uh, oh. and then he just dropped down on one knee and he raised his right arm and he drove his right elbow through those 12 inches of concrete, three of those four inch blocks. I mean, and when he hit those blocks with his elbow, it, they exploded and they shattered. Now, pieces of concrete went all across the studio. And then he didn't even get up. He was still on that one knee and almost he'd hit it with his elbow. And almost at the same time, he just reached over with his big old thick right hand. And he came down on two of those blocks and wow, 
wow, they went shattered across the floor. And then he just got up, jumped on his feet. He dropped on his knees in front of that last block. It was just a four-inch thick one. But he raised his head and he slammed his forehead in through that block, man, like it was a piece of paper. And again, man, the pieces of concrete went just sliding and shooting across the studio floor over into the second studio. (laughs) It was like, wow. You know, so there was probably 10 seconds left out of that 30 seconds. He he busted all those blocks in in less than 10 seconds, I would say. It was just amazing, man. Just wham, wham, wham. Gosh almighty. Uh, everybody in the building was speechless. There's 10 seconds of remaining, and <laughs> nobody could say anything. Les was quiet. We were quiet. The audience was quiet. Was like, everybody was scared what of the hell monster. did we see? You know, <laughs> it was just absolute silence. It was ridiculous. Yeah. So uh, Rob Les and the studio, we just stared at each other in disbelief, man. Mm-hmm. So in the closing seconds, you know, the cameramen at least were really sharp. They were so good at that company. And in that studio, Tanaka had broken that last block with his forehead, and they got a close-up of him. He's 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 looking right in the camera, and he's mad, boy. He's got that bag reef look on his face, and he's got a little trail of blood that trickled down from his forehead and off of his nose. Oh. He drops off of his nose. That was the close of the show. Les goes, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I think we're through. <laughs> yeah. I really didn't know what to say. <laughs> I guess we're through. <laughs> you know, wow, what I say. You know, oh, it was a tremendous ending to the program, man. It was by far the most impressive display of that kind that I'd ever seen. I'd seen people break blocks before, but I'd yeah. never seen them break them like that. That had to be unbelievable, Ron. All right. So if it had that effect on you, and, and Rob, who were standing, and Les, who were standing there watching this thing with your mouths agape, I, I can imagine what effect it had on everybody out there watching it. That That's incredible. <laughs> oh, I, I know what it did to everybody. It blew their minds just like it blew <laughs> our minds, man. They, yeah. they had to be going, wow, this guy's a, unreal, you know? So, you know, it was TV shows like this one that was the reason we had such a huge audience each week. Fans knew after a while, they knew that if they missed the Southeastern Wrestling TV show, they might be missing history. I mean, if somebody missed that show and they had all their friends say, did you see what Tanaka did? And they tried to describe it. You know, they would realize, God, what did I miss? So, you know, it was just really amazing what was happening in the company at that point. Yeah, and see, there you go again. Another show ends with everybody in the audience going, holy cow, and there is Tanaka having busted all of that concrete, and blood is trickling down his face, and it goes off the air. That's that's how you end a wrestling, <laughs> wrestling show. All right, so what were the results of the December 17, 1976 matches, and how much did the Milk Fund at Charity end up scoring that night? I know they did well. Yes, they did. Uh, Rip Smith, obviously, uh, he got a win over the great Mephisto. Great Mephisto, it's one of his last matches. Uh, He didn't have a loser leave town, but he's leaving as well. Don Canoodle won the sleeper versus sleeper match over the new gladiator, Jim Dalton. Uh, Me, Rob, and uh, Tanaka won the six-man tag. Uh, We beat uh, Louis Tillette, and then uh, Louis Tillette, and we beat him pretty good. And Louis Tillette had to be carried out of there. It was pretty nasty for Louis. 
the Von Steigers regained their southeastern tag belts. They they won this match against this two out of three American match that they didn't like. They went out and won anyway, <laughs> you know. And uh, then they, uh, you know, they won their belts back. Uh, Tor Tanaka lost. Yeah, oh. and, uh, and his first and only loser leaves Southeastern match uh, to Ronnie Garvin. Mm. Uh, Tanaka is going to be back, but it's going to be two years before Tanaka c- comes back to Southeastern. You know, and uh, and what a what an impression he had made on fans in that part of the country. Uh, they were really glad to see him when he came back. But they weren't so glad because he came back with another Japanese, and they they were two great heels, and one of the best heel teams ever, Tortanaka and Mr. Fuji. Oh, so we got two big superstars coming back two years later. Uh, the attendance was over four thousand again that night, and many people, as it had been on several other occasions, there got turned away. Uh, and after that display, uh, and I, that was all due, I think, or a big part to the display Tanaka put on in the last 30 seconds of the show, mm. you know, that just really made that happen. The Milk Fund charity, guy, the guy told me, uh, he thanked me at the end of it, uh, and he told me that it was the biggest night they'd ever had at that point uh, for doing an event. They, they, made, they made five grand that night. Wow. Man, they had to be thrilled. That. That's awesome. All right. Another great week for Southeastern wrestling. I bet you were sorry as a booker to see Tanaka go, but by then had you, I mean, had your friendship, uh, had it brought you any closer? What kind of friendship did you have? Oh gosh. I loved him. Uh, I loved him. I loved Charlie. <laughs> gosh, he was a tremendous guy. Uh, wonderful person. Uh, he was a credit to wrestling. He, he was a credit to to mankind. Uh, he was he was just one really really good person and uh, and a tough dude, uh, big big time. Wow, that is awesome. I was so but uh, but surely you were still sorry to see him go. Oh gosh, I was very sorry to see him go. Uh, you know, but uh, he was the one that wanted to go. He knew he had been there for a year. He'd been there for almost exactly a year. And it became pretty standard. Uh, I realized how good he was over. And then when he came back, I realized how much he was appreciated and how quick he got over again. It kind of became for me and Rob, as we began to book uh, on the next companies that we're going to build, that uh, we're going to keep guys for a year. We're going to change guys out every year, about one year in. And uh, it becomes a common uh, business for us in Southeastern and Continental uh, uh, in, in USA for me later on. Uh, it's it just it's going to become that one year is kind of going to become a standard. Cool. All right. You mentioned you mentioned he would be gone for a couple of years. You alluded to that earlier until December of 78. And I, I should have known that he would be back. All right. So time now to take that cold drink. Let's get a seat under the learning tree. Remind us once again, what was the question and who sent it in? So set us up for that. Uh, this today's learning creed question. It uh, came from a gentleman named Jesus Salas Rodriguez. And Jesus says, can you tell us about you and your family's experiences with wrestling bear? Now, I picked this question, as I said earlier, because this stud cast fell on that date that I actually had my first match with a bear. And I don't know any wrestling fans or any fans of any sport 
that are not just literally intrigued by wrestling bears. So this week's studcast photo that I use for every studcast is of my grandfather, Roy Welch, diving on the back of his bear named Ginger during her dangerous training. This is sometime in 19, the 30s, in the 1930s when this, uh, this picture was taken. And uh, it's a pretty amazing photo, man. Uh, the bear don't care. The bear, the bear's <laughs> looking at the camera, and, and Roy's in midair about to slam on her back and surprise her. And uh, I guess he didn't know telling what kind of things to her to get her used to humans and used to wrestling. But uh, it's a tremendous shot. Yeah, uh, wow. and you can find that at tnstud.com, uh, and you'll probably see it if you're looking on social media where we advertise this uh, this studcast number one seventy eight. So this subject obviously can only begin with the bear of a man, Roy himself. You know, who's who's probably meaner than the bear, and the guy, like I said, I think really trained the first professional wrestling bear, which was in the 1930s, and he found the bear he wanted. Uh, when she was young, and he named her Ginger, the female bear. Obviously, that was pretty smart of him. I wouldn't want to get a male bear, you know. And he he never told me where he got her, but but she's going to become a star attraction from her first match to the very last one she ever has. She is going to probably sell out more buildings than anything in wrestling history. Wow. So. Uh, so he takes her after he trains her. He takes her on a North American cruise in 1938 uh, tour, North American tour. Uh, he starts in Mexico. He wrestles all over Mexico. Then he travels through the territories of the United States and finally ends up uh, crossing Canada with her. He was one of the only one in those early years to wrestle her because she was so, so feared. <laughs> Nobody else would would try and he was i think just scared to put some uh, somebody else in the ring with her so she never appeared the entire four years in a city that was not totally sold out never worked an event in four years that didn't sell out she was one of the biggest if not the biggest attractions wrestling had ever seen especially in those days i mean there was she was one of the first if not the first Mm -hmm. so they returned to tennessee in 1942 and when she got back to Tennessee, he continued that string of sellouts in his own Tennessee territory, which was immense, 12 states. Uh, and uh, she worked there over the next three years, and he retired her about 1945, three years later. Uh, crowds were amazed at this bear skills. Uh, she would stand up, obviously, on her hind legs and lock up with Roy, just like a man does, just like other wrestlers did to begin the match. But when she did that, Roy was only five foot eight inches tall, and she towered over Roy. I mean, when when she did that move, uh, Roy said the crowds would just gasp, man. They were like, wow, look how big she is. And they, they really got into the fact that this bear could do it all. Uh, she could fly and marry him. She could backdrop him. She would roll down on her back. He'd come off the ropes, and she would flip him in the air just like a wrestler would. She was amazing. She was really amazing. And their matches would traditionally probably last about 10 minutes. And he told me about, you know, how he'd set his matches up and he tried to get her to do as much stuff as he could. And then he always finished with her sitting up and he'd hand her a Coca-Cola 
which she loved, and uh, and obviously she drank willingly. She looked forward to it. It was her prize. It was her reward yeah. for having a great match. You know, and it had to have been an absolutely astounding display of man and beast between the two of them, and a, and and just what a man could do with a dangerous animal like a bear. And what kind of do those what kind of what kind of bear was this? I mean, was it a black she's a, bear? She's was a black bear. She was a black bear, and she was about a six hundred pound black bear. Wow. She was she was not small. She wasn't a little black bear. Was she uh, reddish in color? Uh, no, she was dark. She was black. Okay. And uh, and yeah. she had, uh, you know, when when fans see this picture, if they go look at uh, the TNstud.com, uh, yeah. look under uh, the stud cast, under this stud cast, uh, she's, the picture is on the gallery as well Yeah, that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, they will see this this photo and, uh, and what she looked like. Uh, Roy loved his bear uh, so much. He loved his bear so much that he never had her claws pulled or her canine teeth. And. Mm. When people train bears after this bear, they always pulled their their claws and they pulled their big teeth, the Ooh, teeth that they yeah. could hurt you with. But this bear had everything that she could hurt you with. Mm-hmm. He put mittens on her claws over her feet and he put this muzzle over her face so that she could not open her mouth and she couldn't bite anybody. Uh, she had mm-hmm. mittens on. She couldn't claw anybody. But still, the the fact that the, she got those mittens off, one of them came off. What was she going to do? I mean, she was a scary bear, and uh, they didn't take chances like that in the future when they trained bears. He did that because it was the only way he could train her was putting those mittens on her and that muzzle on her uh, without having to physically alter her, and he didn't want to do that. And then, God, you had to love an animal to be willing to take those kind of chances with her. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, and, and she was absolutely scared to death of him. <laughs> she, <laughs> yeah, she was horrified of Roy. I mean, he was he was her bear and a big one at that. And but he never abused her in any way. And he would he could brush her, he could wash her with a water hose. Uh, he, he was she was like a baby to him. And uh, and a lot of times when he was home, he would put her on this long chain leash. Yeah, in the backyard of the house. <laughs> they lived out in the country some too. But uh, you know, he just he he'd put her out there so she could be out of cage and she could have some freedom mm-hmm. and be outside. Uh so I got a lot of ginger stories, obviously, but uh but I only have enough time for one today. I'm gonna tell one today. And if you go back for fans out there that may not have listened to the first five stud casts. You'll hear everything about Roy, and you'll hear everything about his bear. Uh, so if you've not heard those, I'd advise you to, to listen to them. I think you will really be entertained by them. So this story that I'm going to tell today give you an idea of the danger that Ginger really presented to everyone other than Roy. So bear in mind, she had all her claws and all her teeth, as I said, and, uh, and she sometimes chained on a leash in the backyard. And she loved Coca-Cola. So that's where I'm going to start with this story. And this story is about my dad, 12 years old. And uh, he has a bear. And how many kids <laughs> they go to school and have bears in their backyard? You know, so uh, dad uh, had kids that wanted to come over and see the bear whenever she was chained outside. And uh, Roy was home 
Roy would never chain her out when he wasn't home because he didn't know what could happen and who could get too close to the bear or whatever it was. And he didn't want anything to happen. And so Roy's thankfully there this day, but Dad has a bunch of young boys from his school. They were going to come over and Dad wants it. Dad doesn't have money to get a Coca-Cola, but he finds a Coca-Cola bottle, bottle and he puts water in it. Now the bear's on a leash. And he's, he knows about how, how far out she can come on her leash. And he gets to it far out. He shows her the Coca-Cola bottle. She recognizes the bottle, you know. So she wants that Coke. Uh, but she don't, she don't know that there's not Coke in the bottle. So mm-hmm. he gets her as far as she can come on the leash, as far as it looks like she can come. And then uh, she reaches, he reaches over and he puts the Coke bottle on the ground. Uh, out in front of her she gets her arms out there gets her front feet out there and she gets it she sits up and she takes a swallow out of it with the very first swallow she realizes it's not coke Uh and she just drops that bottle and she lunges for him and he's a little bit too close she gets one one paw behind his heel and when he tries to back out he falls and then she starts on him. Uh, she grabs him by the claws and she drags him underneath her. She's going to kill him. Uh, she tries to bite him first in the stomach. And dad's 12 years old, but he, he, he was pretty salty. He fought, obviously. <laughs> he got his fingers into her mouth uh, and into her mouth and his hands in her mouth so that she couldn't bite him. And uh, then he almost crawled away, and he said, uh, then she re- she grabbed him and pulled him back. She dug her claws into his thigh, and she pulled him back there again, and then she bit into his right leg, and she bit uh, through his thigh muscle. She bit his thigh muscle, and he said he could see his muscle come out of his leg, and oh, she bit God. it in two. Wow. It popped. And then he passed out, and Roy was right there. He heard him screaming, and then Roy came running, and Roy got the bear off of him. And so my dad spent his whole life, and I remember as a kid, the first time I ever saw his scars on his legs, and I asked him, what's those scars all about? And he told me this story. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's how dangerous that bear was. And uh, things could have been totally different if uh, Roy hadn't been there. Oh, no doubt. How, how How many kids were there, like school friends of your father's? He said probably eight or ten. Oh, well, I, I bet they were. I bet they were about oh, to pass. Oh, you're going what a scene! I mean, guys, oh, think yeah. how horrible that was for them too. Uh, that's, that's just incredible. Your father was almost killed by your grandfather's wrestling bear. Yeah, it makes me think that if that had happened, there would never have been a Tennessee stud. But I also would recall that I was raised by wolves. <laughs> well you can tell that story next time yeah, yeah okay yeah stay tuned for that that's just, that is an incredible story about i mean your your father literally at 12 years old could have been killed right there on the spot yeah yeah and then wow. you're right there would never been a tennessee stud and uh you know uh and, and and it just tells you i came from a crazy family <laughs> you know? there's no doubt about that man you know we we weren't the, we weren't the ordinary family in any way whatsoever so i'm running out of time today and I, i've got one more story for mr rodriguez and uh, right. he asked me in that learning tree question to tell him some of my family's experience with wrestling bears so this last story is about my only experience actually having a match with a wrestling bear. 
It took place on the Saturday, December 18th. Now, we had wrestled on Friday night, the 17th of 1976 in Knoxville. The next night, I'm going to end up wrestling the bear. So that's kind of what I saved this question for this week for. The match occurred in a city that we ran every other Saturday night, Morristown, Tennessee. And it had I had the great pleasure of wrestling a bear with my father that night, then wrestling by myself. He had a lot of experience with bears, and not to mention that 12-year-old altercation one that he probably doesn't like to talk about. He and his uncle, Lester Welch, about the same age, both of them, they trained their own bear, their own wrestling bear, wow. uh, when they were starting to be wrestlers. So uh, I had never wrestled a bear. So this story is going to basically begin with a main event match in Marstown, Tennessee. It's my dad and my and myself against Kurt and Carl Von Steiger. And the deal was the loser of the match had to wrestle the bear. So, <laughs> yeah. So, 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 and then the, the bad part about it was, is, is they lost the match, you know, <laughs> so oh. we beat them, we beat them. Yeah. And then, uh, and then uh, they, they brought the bear in the building and they put him in the ring. And then they said, okay, bring out the Von Steigers. And uh, the Von Steigers were gone. <laughs> so those boys went out the back door, man. <laughs> so me and dad were looking at each other and we go, well, hey, somebody's got to wrestle that bear. So Too my dad said, Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stupid yeah. Americans. Yeah, yeah. They, there you go. They really had a reason to say stupid Americans in. <laughs> and they weren't dummies, man. They left. They left the building. So, so we get we go out and we wrestle the bear because, you know, we got to give the fans the, the show they came to see. So dad knew how to wrestle the bear. He'd trained bears before. Uh, and the, the bear guy, the guy that was on this bear, it was just him. And he had a he had a long leash around her neck, the bear's neck. This bear had had hundreds of matches, probably. And so me and dad just standing in the ring. The bear's on the opposite side. The guy's got him. We're getting the introductions. And I tell dad, I said, I want to start. I want to start the match. <laughs> he goes, no, no, no. Kind of like Harlan, Kentucky. Remember I told this Harlan, Kentucky story where dad and I, and he never got in the ring, right? Right, yeah. So this one, again, I'm saying, I, I, I want to start the match. And then, no, no, no. He goes, you, you know, you don't you don't know nothing about bears, you know? No, I said, no, no, no. I want to start. So he finally says, okay, kid. So he gets out on the apron. And they ring the bell. And the bear stands up. The bear comes about the middle of the ring. I'm standing in the corner, and the bear stands up on his back legs to, to lock up with you, right? You're supposed to go out and hook up with him just like mm-hmm. a regular wrestler. Mm-hmm. Instead, I go running across the ring. I hit him about chest high, and I knocked that bear over backwards that I was on top of him, right? And the trainer went nuts. He said, screaming, get off, get off. Get off my bear. What are you doing? You know, so, so I was trying to beat the bear. <laughs> so, so it was, you know, oh, that finally the bear got got up, got up and out from underneath me. And, the, and dad's over there in the corner. Come here. Come here. <laughs> Come here. And he goes, boy, what tag the me. hell were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, he goes, tag me, man. Tag me. Get, give me oh a tag. Oh, my God. So he goes in the ring, man, and there the bear stands up for him, and he goes over and locks up. Boy, that bear gives him a monkey flip. The the bear gives him a flying mare. The bear does all the deals he's supposed to do. 
<laughs> so, toward the end of the deal, the match should have been over, I guess. And uh, the, the, it shouldn't have got back to me again. But somehow, Dad says, "Okay, boy, now, kind of you you watched me do it. Show me, show me what you learned." <laughs> Basically, he tagged <laughs> me back in. Mm-hmm. The bear stood up, and I tackled him again. <laughs> Boy, the bear trainer was screaming, and Dad screaming. Oh, if I know why. Anyway, my bear experience was uh, not what it was supposed to be for a wrestler. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. I love being a part of these studcasts. Very few people on this planet, Ron, have had a life like yours. These are absolutely historical treasures for wrestling fans everywhere. That is a ton of fun. But, but but now the bear that you wrestled and you said this was in 76, this, this, this was not the same bear. Was this, this was somebody else's bear. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. There was a guy that had a traveling bear and he wrestled, uh, he brought his bear all over the South, probably all over the country. So when you, you were know. tackling his bear, he's like, what the hell are you thinking? Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, Whoa, wait just a minute. Nobody knocks my bear down. Oh my God. <laughs> so, well, yeah, it, it was a was a bad experience for the bear trainer, uh, bad experience for dad. But, uh, you know, I, I went out of there thinking, well, hell, you know, uh, I at least showed him something different. Well, it wasn't yeah. exactly what the old man wanted them to see. <laughs> How old did Ginger live to be? Uh, I did- really don't know. I know that Roy did not keep her after he, he retired her from the ring. And I think she probably ended up in a zoo. Mm-hmm. Would be my guess, right? You no, know, and she had a nice, soft life, and uh, that was great, great thing. Uh, boy, she must have had some tremendous experiences, though, and uh, I know he did. And boy, they must have entertained. There's no telling how many thousands and thousands of fans that him and that bear entertained in Mexico, and uh, America, and in Canada. Wow, another amazing show right there, Ron. On Facebook, simply like. And follow the stud on Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page on Facebook, or the author, Ron Fuller Welch page, and become friends with a legend. On Twitter and Instagram, Ron Fuller Welch on both. Super Studcast number 36, part one, is now available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. It features the Hall of Famer, Coco Beware, and tell us a little bit about this one. This had to be a ton of fun hooking back up with your old buddy, Coco Beware. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I realized uh, a lot of things, found out a lot of things. He was actually born 35 miles away from the town I was born in. A young boy from Union City, Tennessee, goes on to become a WWE Hall of Famer. Wow, he had a tremendous career. I learned a whole lot about Coco that I didn't know. And uh, and I'm real happy to say that part two of this one, I've been asking for Norvell Austin, trying to find Norvell Austin. I have found Norvell Austin, and he's going to be doing part two of this one, this number 36 with me. So um, it's going to be a tremendous studcast. That's awesome. All right. And don't forget, Ron's fantastic novel, Brutus, is now becoming somewhat a sensation. You can get it on Amazon.com. Brutus novel or the special autograph copy at tnstud.com. Click on stud store at tnstud.com. So where are we headed next week, Ron? Well, we're going to have another great episode in today's training. Uh, the focus uh, is going to be on the second Southeastern Christmas night spectacular. 
the TV promoting it, the attendance, the results will all be in that show next week. Learning Tree Questions is going to ask what it's like for wrestlers with holidays, with these Christmas and these Thanksgiving shows. How is that for your family, uh, being a wrestler and having to work on those days? That's a, that's a great question. It's very fitting. We're going to be talking about a, thank, a Christmas night event. Uh, so I would say that's a perfect question uh, again next week uh, for that studcast. And, you know, I want to thank, as always, all my loyal customers and all my loyal fans and listeners out there. And welcome to those that joined us today for the first time. If this is one of the first you've ever listened to, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Please tell others about it if you did, and uh, take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. This is David Summers. I approve this studcast, and I thank you for listening and remind you that Ron Fuller's studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.